0: All right, welcome to another episode of Inappropriate Earl. And uh, I know I say this a lot. I'm excited to have every guest on this show. But uh, today's guest is a bucket list guest because, as you know, I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. I was lucky enough to co-host the last few months of uh, Roddy Piper's podcast. And uh, being uh, in a room with him was like being with a superhero. And uh, today I feel the very same way because... The man I have on, he wasn't in the Monday Night Wars. He was the Monday Night Wars. And I have many things to thank him for. For how he treated my favorite wrestler, Sting. Unlike uh, his current company. And uh, of course for bringing in the Ultimate Warrior. in the greatest uh, 34 minute uh, segment ever in pro wrestling history. And uh, I have so many questions to ask. uh, And it is a true honor to have the one, the only... Mr. Eric Bischoff.
1: Thank you, Earl. It is uh it's a pleasure to be here. And after that build up, I think we should just wrap this up right now because I can't live up to those expectations. But, but you it's can. a great it's a great honor to be here.
0: It's uh but you can though, because you were so a part of so many of my favorite moments in wrestling. And uh you know, frankly I find wrestling unwatchable right now. Uh because it's just there's one company for the most part and uh, there's just the characters aren't there, and you were a part of the last great era of uh, pro wrestling, in my opinion.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that, and it's funny. Wrestling has been around since the beginning of television time, and clearly was around a long time before wrestling, or before television. But, you know, it's been around forever, and I, I think, you know, I've been in it now almost 30 years, and one of the things that I've found is that Every generation, you know, has a period of time that they look back and say, "Wow, that was the best era of professional wrestling. It'll never be that good again, until it is. And and something will come along somewhere down the line, and there'll be a uh, a reemergence, if you will, uh, of, of of wrestling in the mainstream media and and mainstream, you know." Um, popularity and we'll have another generation that will be looking back at 2016 or 18 and go wow that was the best decade of professional wrestling so let's just hope it comes around again
0: because i mean it's wrestlemania week and uh i can't recall a wrestlemania that had so little buzz around it um you know last year i was uh severely disappointed in uh how they used sting Mm -hmm. and uh you know, I'm not sure how many times I'll be in a room with you, Mr. Bischoff. <laughs> I hope many more. But uh, you being a booker, I mean, you've done it all in the wrestling business. and Pretty much. Uh, you know, I want to run my idea last year for Sting. Okay. And you give me your honest opinion. Sure. Now, uh, I, I, to this day, it still does not make sense to me that he lost his first match uh, in the WWE. And, uh, you know... To me, the run ins they did at the end of his match, uh, you know, when the NWO came down to save him, when they were never aligned with him once, the black and white NWO. Right. Um, to me, it would have made more sense if they all ganged up on him, beat the shit out of him, and then Goldberg's music hits and he saves the day. That could
1: have been awesome that could have been awesome. But you know, when you look at scenarios like that and, and when you have, and don't take this the wrong way, but please, and, and I, 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 I do the same thing myself. Um, you can always have perfect 2020 hindsight and say, wow, if they just would have done this or if they just would have done that. But the, the challenge with looking at things from that perspective is one never really knows or is aware of all of the variables that, that exist when that creative decision is made uh, or when a creative decision is made, you know, Bill Goldberg, for example, just to take your idea, that would have been a phenomenal scenario. And a, and the audience would have reacted, you know, in, in, a, in a great way, in a predictable way, it would have been awesome. But Bill doesn't have any desire to work for the WWE. Um, he's made that abundantly clear uh, in, in somewhat abrasive ways, you know, throughout the the years, so it's a great idea, but it's a great idea that probably could never happen just because of the people involved. Um, I like your take on the NWO attacking Sting because that would have kind of paid tribute to the legacy of the NWO and the relationship with Sting, and fans would have really, I think, it would have resonated in in a big way with fans. But there may have been other things going on. They may have been, much, they may have had much bigger plans for Sting at that time to To come out of that match and 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 go forward in a storyline uh, that made a great deal of sense that we'll never know about. Uh, Sting had his match. it It didn't go that well for him. He did get hurt. And you have to realize that a character like Sting, as much as I respect him and love him for the person that he is and and what he's accomplished, you know he's at the end of his career. There's a limit to f- physically what he can do and what he wants to do. Um, even prior to the injury so you just have to take all of those things into consideration when you're analyzing a story like that and recognize that there's just some degrees of of information or or, or variables that you just will never know about or understand
0: i mean i you know i listen obviously i respect your opinion much more than mine i, I mean you you've been behind the scenes i just it, to me like just as an idiot fan uh
1: no such thing as an idiot fan, by the way.
0: Well, well I mean. They're
1: fans, and they're that, passionate.
0: Well, I, w- right. It's just the way to bring him in was like give him a couple wins and, and so you build up his, his brand like in the WWE because mm-hmm. there's a lot of fans who don't know who he is, mm-hmm. which is crazy to me. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those, say, 13-year-old to 25-year-olds are like who didn't watch TNA – and now there's a lot of those (laughs) well we'll get to tna in a second yeah but uh you know triple triple h's character after wrestlemania is the same win or lose to me he's the badass corporate you know shill married in real life to the boss's daughter which kind of adds to his character uh you know if sting beats him it's like who's that guy hey we want to buy his dvds we want to you know look him up on youtube and and then, you know, the next night on Raw, they have him in an awful segment with Bo Dallas, who's like, you know, the modern day Iron Mike Sharp, you know, just like, <laughs> what what are you doing to this guy? And, uh, you know, and then, you know, he lost to Seth Rollins. I mean, oh, and two. And, I, and then he's being inducted into the Hall of Fame this weekend it's like i don't think anyone cares like
1: well i think sting's fans care like you care and, and and i care i mean i'm 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 going to i'm going to enjoy it vicariously through him because i know it'll mean a lot to to steve borden the person and to sting the character but and i look i agree with a lot of what you say in terms of Sting coming in and getting a couple wins and and building up that that legacy a little bit more before he finally got beat. I I agree with you. I I don't understand the idea of bringing him in and beating him right away um, the way they did because it is a letdown. You know, the fans that were excited about seeing him come to WWE are going to be disappointed automatically when— when he, he doesn't win his very first match. So I agree with that, but just keep an open mind and realize there may have been a plan that would have been a better plan. Um, if Sting wouldn't have got hurt and if things would have been different, who knows maybe, maybe, there wasn't, maybe you're absolutely right on the money and maybe there was never plan to, to build Sting up and take advantage of his legacy and his character. But I, I like to think that there might've been,
0: I mean, I, I do too, but then, you know, 20 minutes after their match, Triple H is in a suit and tie, looking like he just got out of a day spa. <laughs> Already in another angle with Ronda Rousey, and right. and and it's just like and then uh, JBL just bearing sting the whole match in the announcers' uh, possession. Now maybe he was being fed lines by certain people, but. I don't know,
1: unquestionably. And you know, I, I had a, I, I don't like to name drop. So please I, I'm do. Not, I'm not going to do it today, but I had, you know, I had a really interesting lunch yesterday with a fascinating individual um, who is probably has his finger on the pulse of politics more than anybody I've ever met in my life. Very high profile guy. And he's consulted with senators and congressmen and women and, He's done a lot of great things in his life. And he just also happens to be a big wrestling fan, which I just love, you know, because people have a, a perception of what a wrestling fan is or who a wrestling fan is. And, and, and they're almost always so wrong. Wrestling fans come in all shapes, sizes, races, nationalities, and, and so forth. And the person that I was talking to was a friend um, asked about, you know, why does wrestling work? Why, how can it be so popular? And the answer is simple. And and you're talking about it right now when it's good, when it's good, it, it allows you to suspend your disbelief. It allows you, everybody knows what wrestling is. It's not a secret. Um, But when it's good, when it's believable, when you do the little things, the littlest things that lend credibility to it and allow the viewer to suspend their disbelief without feeling silly about it, then you have them. You have the audience, but when you do things like you just mentioned with Triple H being in a suit and looking like he just got out of a day spot 20 minutes after a match, it tends to take away from that believability and credibility. And it makes the audience almost feel a little embarrassed for, for wanting to believe in it. And it's those little things like you just pointed out that make all the difference in the world.
0: Well, it's like, you know, I don't want to make this podcast all about Sting, but like Uh, to me his last great storyline was when in wcw that first match with hogan where it was so drawn out Mm -hmm. and the storyline was so compelling and just the little vignettes of him up in the rafters not saying anything and and hogan as a heel was just awesome that first run Mm -hmm. and you were like really wanted to see that match versus you know now things seem to be done and you know maybe a, a month of storylines wrapped, started and wrapped up. And it's that is
1: unfortunate, isn't it? That you don't really have the long-term, long-term story arcs like there used to be. Um, and not, not to interrupt you, but to add to your point, you know, one of the things when I first started getting involved in the creative aspect of wrestling, because I, I didn't get involved in the creative end of things for a long time. I resisted it um, for a lot of reasons. But once I finally did and committed to it, I always admired The WWE, because it seemed like they planned everything out six months in advance, a year in advance, and you were building up to these big moments. And I strived for that. Um, In reality, that, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, And it certainly isn't now, but I think a lot that has a lot more to do with just the sheer volume of television and pay-per-views that are produced. When you've got three hours on Monday and you've got another two hours on Thursday, and uh, you've got twelve pay-per-views a year, um, it's really hard to focus on long-term storylines, and and that's really unfortunate. That's that's kind of like the unfortunate. Side of the business becoming so popular, because now it almost consumes itself creatively, um, because you you just can't take the time to build up characters and build up storylines. You can't afford to lose the audience's attention.
0: I mean, that was what was great about having a legitimate competitor to the WWE is like it forced them to create basically what became D action of the NWO and and I mean turning Hogan bad was like. It was like wrestling nine eleven i mean it was, yeah, it, was a, it
1: was an amazing experience
0: and and just that uh the initial run of the n w o was just like wow you really hated those guys and, and they were all so good and then like, do you think the n w o kind of maybe when Virgil started hanging around uh did that did it become too watered down <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think it necessarily had anything to do with Virgil, but I think, you know, the addition of so many people to the NWO was clearly, whether it was Virgil or Ted DiBiase or Marcus Bagwell or Scott Norton or...
0: Horace Hogan. Uh, Horace
1: Hogan or the barber, whatever the hell he was called, the butcher. The disciple. Right? Disciple. Um, yeah, that, that, you know, in retrospect, that was a really bad idea on my part. Um, and I can't defend it, really, other than to explain why I did it, even though I'm explaining it. It's still a bad idea, even though I can explain it. But the idea was to build the NWO up so it was big enough and had enough of a roster that I could split the rosters. And I actually have an NWO kind of a um, Nitro would have been more of an NWO show and WCW would have had its own brand on Thursday nights. So that was Or it might have been vice versa, WCW on Nitro, NW on Thursday. I can't remember which one we were going to assign to which program. But the idea was to build it up big enough that I could create a split and have essentially two separate brands. Um, WWE did it successfully with Raw and SmackDown. I did it unsuccessfully trying to utilize the NWO. But, you know, if I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't do it. But I doubt I'll get that shot.
0: I I don't know. Never say never. Never say never. Yeah, you're right. Because you're really the only guy to ever successfully compete against them. Not just compete, beat them for two years.
1: Yeah, and that was a lot of you know. So much of it is, and I you know I I really do appreciate you saying that. So I don't mean to diminish what you said. It's it's a it's it's a compliment. But so much of it was timing, bro. I mean, you just you have to if you step back. And just close your eyes and sit back and look at the landscape back then. You know, WWE, WWF at that time was coming off a pretty bad era. Vince McMahon had gone through a lot outside of the business. Um, and the business had suffered a little bit. It had become stagnant and stale. And it was kind of on autopilot to a large degree. There were some people that were in WWE that had previously been in WCW and um, that were ready to leave WWE and come back. And when they, you know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash in particular, when they left WCW, they were frustrated. They were just pissed off and resentful of everything that was going on. Didn't feel like they were being treated fairly or as people like to use wrestling vernacular, used properly. So they went to WWE and became big stars. And when they were ready to leave WWE and come back, there was an instant storyline there. Because now two guys who left with a bad taste in their mouth are coming back and are coming back with a chip on their shoulder and they're going to make people pay. That was the premise of the NWO storyline. And that was more about timing than it was about great creative architecture on my part. It was just, it was fortunate. And it would be hard to recreate that kind of thing again because the situation is so much different. The business evolved in such a way that that opportunity will probably never happen again where you have two stars who are coming off of, you know, a successful run in WWE and ready to make a big move to another established wrestling organization. I just don't see it ever happening.
0: It it was great timing because, you know, guys like Savage and... and Hogan and, and Flair and, and even Warrior a couple years later, uh, they were still like, fans my age were like, oh my God, they're, go- they're going back to WCW and it was such an excitement. And, you know, now I don't know if, if they're, you know, if if say, let's just say Roman Reigns went to TNA, I'd be like, oh, okay.
1: Well, and because, uh, you know, you mentioned Roman, Reign- Roman Reigns, who I happen to really dig his character a lot. You know, he's one of the, one of the characters, when I look at the WWE roster currently, there's a there's a handful, but he's certainly at the top. There's just something about him. There's a charisma. There's an edge. There's something about him, and I don't know him. I've never met him, but you know there are a handful of guys that fall into that category. But you know what? They haven't been around long enough, right? And that's the other thing about the business that or the industry that you know people sometimes fail to re- recognize is that if you look at you look at the stars, guys who are legitimate. Big stars in 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 sports entertainment slash professional wrestling. Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's a, who's a good friend of mine. Um, Rick Flair you know, uh, Goldberg. Well, Goldberg's in a Goldberg and a rock Goldberg and the rock are an exception. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. Roddy Piper, all of the Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, anybody that you can name that you could say was a, a big star had been in the business for 10 or 15 years before they made it to right. that big star status. So the current roster at WWE guys like Roman Reigns and, you know, Daniel Bryan, whoever you want to name, um, that are more current. Um, they just haven't been around long enough to have that oh-my-gosh factor if right. they were to make a big move like that. It takes 10 or 15 years.
0: Right. And, it, like, Reigns is, like, weird to me because it, it seems like the fans kind of like him, but a lot hate him. Or not hate, but, like, they're, they're just sometimes the WWE seems to have dropped the ball with him. Like
1: I think they confused a lot of fans. I think they confused a lot of people a year or two ago, and you know, with false starts. Right. You know, when you get, when you set a guy up and it looks like he's going to emerge and then you take it away from him and then you set him up again and you take it away from him again, if it's done properly, that can make the audience really want to see to get behind him and, you know, push for him because he's an underdog, but you can also do it incorrectly where they just lose confidence in the character altogether and they just get a bad taste in their mouth and, You know, it happens, unfortunately. And hopefully that's not what has happened to Roman Reigns. But I understand why the audience is confused.
0: Because they had him in The Shield with uh, Rollins and Ambrose. It was like an NWO type of uh, faction. And then they kind of broke him up, I thought, a little too soon. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the fans, he's almost like John Cena. Like They're torn as, well, kids love him, but the adults don't really like him. So what do we do? Do Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? And you know, I don't think he's had that opponent yet that brings out his best.
1: Probably, probably true. And like I said, since I don't know him, I don't know how good he is on the mic. I don't know what his skill sets
0: are
1: side of the ring, and that's a big part of it too. It's hard to give a guy a big push and make him that, you know, hood ornament for your brand and, and represent your company when his mic skills uh, or her mic skills maybe not be the best because a lot of what, you know, characters do and stars do, yeah, they do it in the ring, but they do it outside of the ring as well. And they do it when there are no cameras around. You have to be almost an ambassador of the business in a way that that's effective. And if, if a talent is great in the ring, but you know, shuts down when they get a microphone in their hand, that's a, that's a big disadvantage.
0: Can you teach someone that or like, uh, like I remember uh, when Rick Rude came on uh, Nitro that first night, mm-hmm. and it was just that little speech he gave was just was like such charisma and and just energy exuding from him, and you could tell it was just him. I mean, can someone learn that, or if they don't have it, it, it's you limit their mic time or put them with a manager who, like a Paul Heyman, or you know, someone of that ilk.
1: Yeah, I mean, to answer the question, it's a, you know. Can someone teach me how to play guitar? Sure. Will I ever become Eric Clapton? Happy birthday, Eric. No, absolutely not. You know, some people just have that skill set and are born with that talent and ability. And yes, you can nurture it and you can make it better. And you can take somebody who's good and make them great, and somebody who's great and make them unbelievable. But if you take someone that's inherently shy or just not able to become that character deep down in their soul, you can teach him to become better, but you may not ever be able to teach him to become great.
0: Right now, when you, in the height of the Monday Night Wars, did you have like not necessarily spies, but how did you keep up with what the WWE was doing? Did you have like inside people there saying, hey, they're going to do this? You, maybe you guys should have a bad guy faction or
1: no no i mean contrary to the urban legend um i didn't really watch hardly at all anything of what they were doing while we were in the thick of things because a there was no need to i certainly wasn't trying to replicate a failed formula right um or at least i shouldn't say a failed formula that is a that is a that is the wrong way to say it. Their their formula was very successful for them, because they were targeting kids and teens, and you know before Attitude Area, they were decidedly a very you know teen and preteen type of a, of a product, because that was their business model. Much of their money was made in licensing and merchandising um, that WCW didn't have, quite frankly. So while they were targeting one demographic, I was targeting targeting another with a different presentation. So there was no need for me to look at what they were doing and go, oh, wow, I got to come up with my own Doink the Clown. Right. Because I was going, trying to go in a much different direction. It Now, did I have people who would inform me from time to time? You know, for example, I got a phone call, and I'll never forget, I was actually, I was taking flying lessons down in Kissimmee, Florida. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine uh, who's since passed on by the name of Zayn Breslov. Zayn used to work for the WWE. And he ended up working for for me at WCW for a number of years, and Zane always had his ear to the ground. Zane always had inside contacts that he maintained as friends from his time in, in WWE. So occasionally, Zane would call me and say, "Oh man, you're not going to believe what they're going to do next." And such was the case when Mike when they decided to sign Mike Tyson right. to do a deal at WrestleMania, and I remember, you know. Zane calling me, and oftentimes he would call me with little tidbits of things that were just amusing. Um, very, very seldom was it anything that I went, oh, I better pay attention to that. But when Zane called me and he told me about Mike Tyson, I, I, I remember I was standing at a phone booth, believe it or not, there were still phone booths back then. <laughs> and Zane, when I called Zane and he told me that, I, I, I set the phone down, I took a deep breath and I went, wow, I'm kind of toast because this is going to be
0: big. Yeah, it's Mike Tyson. Yeah,
1: it's going to be big. And it was, but yeah, occasionally I get I get some inside information, but not very often.
0: Is that why you brought in uh, guys like say Dennis Rodman to like not necessarily? He's not the same as Mike Tyson, but he's pretty close.
1: No, I wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a reaction to bringing in Mike Tyson. I always believed that in order for us to get the kind of publicity that we wanted, you have two choices: you need to go out and pay for it, which is very ineffective usually, or you can do something to create your own media and, and signing somebody like Dennis Rodman I knew would be very controversial, particularly at the height of his career. You know, when right. he was playing for the bulls He was an NBA leading rebounder and world champion and, and taking on Carl Malone and the jazz and, 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 Dennis was a controversial character in and of himself, whether or not he ever played a game of baseball or basketball. So you know, no, bringing in celebrities was not a reaction to Mike Tyson, but it was a desire on my part to get mainstream coverage of what we were doing.
0: Was he, uh, willing, you know, he was pretty good in the ring for someone who, uh, (laughs) a great athlete. Uh, was he willing to uh, listen to the boys and, you know, take their wrestling advice or was he like, I got it. Just let me do my thing. No, no.
1: Dennis, I, and I, by the way, I, I really, really like Dennis Rodman a lot as a human being. When you, if, if you, if one would have an opportunity to spend a couple hours and because it takes a long time to get Dennis to open up to you <laughs> or to anybody, but when you really get to hear Dennis Rodman speak from his heart and from his experience, he is a wonderful human being. Uh, not without his flaws, obviously, but who is Who it is absolutely right. He is a, he's got a kind heart. He's one of the most generous people that I know um, to a fault. He's generous, um, but, but he's a, he's a sweet person, believe it or not. Um, but when he came in, he was, he's such a professional. He, he listened to almost every word, you know, that Hulk, H- Hulk Hogan gave him. Cause it was really Hulk that was helping to train him along with some others. And he was, he was all ears, man. He was a hundred percent on his game. Now, I will tell you, it was hard to get him <laughs> to the ring to train because right. he was distracted with a lot of other more fun and interesting things to do at that time. Uh,
0: I can imagine. <laughs>
1: and I gotta tell you, I, you know, it was kind of fun, you know, being a fly on the wall and watching some of it. But um when he got into the ring, he was all he was all business.
0: Well, I'd imagine his basketball mindset would kick in as like, okay, I'm in the ring with someone who could probably hurt me if I mess up.
1: No, I I don't think it was that at all. I think it was, you know, he probably didn't want to get hurt accidentally, but Dennis is a perfectionist. And when you, I think when you're an athlete at that level or a musician at that level or an actor or actress at, at, at whatever level, if you're performing, you reach that, that much success, you don't want to fail. You want to go out there and be the best you can possibly be. Now, Dennis had a gift, you know, he was, he was born with an athletic gift and he, you could show Dennis, someone could show Dennis a series of moves in the ring that would take an average person, you know, a month and a half or two months to get comfortable with. And Dennis would do it once or twice in slow motion. And by the third time he was doing it like he'd been doing it for 15 years. He was just that guy. Um, If Dennis would have spent six months training, Dennis probably could have been one of the better performers. Forget about being a celebrity or not. He would have been a phenomenal performer.
0: Do the boys like, what are their feelings when a non wrestler comes in and, and gets a pretty big spotlight put mm-hmm. on them? I mean, I'm sure they understand it's Dennis Rodman here, but Hey, fuck it. I was wrestling in mid South, uh, mm-hmm. grinding it out with Abdullah, the butcher, <laughs> uh, or do they, is there not bitterness, but is there a little bit of resentment? I think it depends on
1: who the talent is. I think, you know, for example, when, when Rodman came in with Carl Malone, um, Hulk Hogan, Diamond Dallas Page, um, the NWO, anybody at Randy Savage, anybody is within close proximity to that storyline were all like high fiving each other in their sleep because all it meant was the media was paying more attention, the audience was paying more attention. It was good for everybody, you know, in the immediate. Um, area code, so to speak. But once you got outside the, that group of people who, who Dennis was working with uh, or any other celebrity, then I think as you get farther down the roster, you, you may find some people that are a little bit resentful, whether they express it or not. It's a different thing. But, yeah, I think you probably would find some.
0: And I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you just sit them in a room and go, listen, man, he's a big star? I, I
1: mean- never dealt with that. I never felt the need to try to explain myself to to somebody at that level, you know, you, you there's I have a I have a very high expectation of myself. If and I'll give you the example, when I worked for WWE, when I worked for for Vince McMahon, I never once questioned anything he asked me to do. Never once, because my job wasn't to question his creative decisions or strategic decisions. My job was to take the storyline that I was given and be to do it absolutely the best I could possibly do it, to be the best character I could be and to deliver the best storyline I could deliver. That was my job. That's just the way I was brought up in, in the industry. And I have the same expectation of other people. So when I when I had talent working for me, um, it doesn't mean that I wasn't interested in hearing what they had to say creatively. If they had a positive suggestion or an idea that could maybe make something better, I, would, you know, I was all ears. But to listen to somebody, you know, piss and moan because a big celebrity's coming in, getting a big payday, and, you know, they wrestled Abdullah the Butcher in Mid South, that would not have, I wouldn't have spent a lot of time listening to that.
0: I really wish you would have brought Abdullah in just for a quick run. <laughs>
1: I'm Baby. surprised we didn't. We brought in everybody
0: else. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I, I'd be remiss to talk about this because, uh, you know, the warrior uh, was, uh, he's 1A as my favorite wrestler. I've heard varying things about him in terms of uh, his the ease of working with him. But uh, the look on your face during his initial promo <laughs> might be the greatest exp- uh, non-vocal expression I've ever seen a human <laughs> give another man. Like, because that i thought could have been an awesome storyline uh like the only man to cleanly pin hogan comes mm-hmm. back the way you guys brought him out you know bobby heenan uh, announcing like he didn't know who it was it's just it was just the most amazing i got chills mm-hmm. and uh you know five minute speech crowd is super hot and it's like <laughs> i don't think i've ever heard a crowd hotter and, and then uh I don't know, about from five to ten minutes, still hot. And then he starts getting into the Shakespearean zingers. You just something is like, Eric doesn't look too happy right now. Hmm. Uh, At what point did you go, dude, you got to wrap it up?
1: Probably in about 12 minutes because the the whole promo was really only designed to be maybe 12 minutes long. And the... (laughs) And the look on my face while you were watching that go down on, on on television was probably more concern on my part about just the timing of our show. You you lay out a two hour show, and every segment is timed. Now you know it could go a little long or a little short depending on the situation. But by a little long and a little short, we're talking thirty seconds, maybe a minute. That's right. you know that's really significant um, because you've got commercial breaks. You've you've got to get them in. You know you you've got to all that stuff's got to get in that bag somehow some way before before the end of the show and when that thing went on 14 minutes 15 minutes 16 minutes 18 minutes 20 minutes i'm thinking you know major cluster going on here because it's going to affect the rest of the show now the timing and everything else that we had to have planned had to change because the amount of time that took so that was you know probably the look on my face combined with the fact that it was just, it, the the promo became incoherent after about five minutes. And he was just going off on a track that nobody really understood where it was going or what the outcome was going to be. I mean, we were all just literally standing there looking at each other going, I don't even know how to react to this. What do we right. do next? <laughs> he just clearly had to improv.
0: I think it was 28 minutes.
1: It was the longest 28 minutes of my life.
0: Yeah, I mean. I've
1: never given birth, so I don't know what that feels like. But from what I've heard, from what my wife has told me, you know, childbirth can feel like hours and hours and hours of pain, even when it's not. And that's kind of what that reminded me of, is like giving birth to a rhinoceros. Well,
0: now I don't think I've ever heard you talk about what was the conversation with him like when you guys get backstage. I imagine it was something along the lines of what the fuck was that?
1: You know, I don't remember. I wish I did, but I don't. Um, Knowing me the way I know myself and and particularly how I would have reacted probably back then, um, I would have just avoided him because I would have been angry and, you know, confronting him when I'm angry would have been unproductive.
0: Right. Is the, and I'm not giving you any, any gruff over that storyline, but was, uh, that storyline may be one of the disappointments uh toward the end of uh because i thought in theory it was like wow this is great there you know
1: well i think it could have been it could have been much better than it was obviously but if you remember um where he got hurt he he tore a bicep right after he got there and that put him out of action for quite a while that's a serious injury when the muscle completely tears away from the bone and the tendon and just rolls up and looks like a big you know giant softball you know right. up in your shoulder um, that's, a, it requires surgery and takes a long time. So that, that really pulled the rug out from underneath the, the, the storyline. And we had to kind of like m- make do with what we had to try to, to salvage it.
0: Right now, of course, uh, bringing in and kiss my favorite group Ah, yeah. of all time uh, and the, the wrestler, the demon Dale mm-hmm. Torborg, was that, uh, you know, KISS was big at the time. Uh, you know, the reunion was mm-hmm. kind of in full gear. Uh, did that uh, work out like you wanted it to?
1: No, it didn't, but it had nothing to do with KISS. You know, um, the the idea, the original idea was, and if you remember all of the awareness and discussion and fear surrounding 1999 and and 2000, the new millennium, there was a period in time where people were actually concerned what was going to happen to the internet. Y2K. Everybody was so concerned about it. You know, it was in in the mainstream and I thought, okay, I've got an idea. Wouldn't it be great to do a pay-per-view on December 31st, 1999, start that pay-per-view around 9 o'clock instead of 8 o'clock and start it so that in such a way that the last match would have its finish, and the finish would coincide with a countdown of Y2K, so that it would be literally one, right. one tap, you know, 11, 59, 57, whatever right. it is. So literally the, the, the pay-per-view ended on the final count of a three-count. That was the idea. And what the way I was going to utilize kiss in that is I had successfully negotiated with the uh, Fiesta Bowl because it was taking place. In, it takes place in, in Tempe, Arizona. Wow. And I was going to do it the night before I was going to do it before the, the Fiesta Bowl. We're going to do it down on the field. And half of the field would have been set up for wrestling and And then at the 50 yard line, you look in the other direction and there would have been a stage and it would have been a kiss performance. And the format for that pay-per-view was going to be kiss performance on this end zone, go to this end zone for a wrestling match and just bounce back and forth all night long between kiss performances and wrestling matches. And that was why we wanted, you know, kiss and and Gene Simmons involved because it added to that heightened Y2K kind of feeling. Um, so it worked well. We set it up well. It, it it could have probably worked okay, but I was never able to pull off the pay-per-view.
0: Well, I can imagine the negotiations with Gene must have been, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall.
1: You know, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, I mean, look, Gene is, he is a weaponized <laughs>
0: negotiator. Because <laughs> he knows what he wants.
1: He knows what he wants, and he's really, really, really smart and really good at what he does. And I'm not saying it was easy in the sense that I got what I wanted because quite frankly, I paid dearly for his involvement. And I do believe to this moment, Had I been able to pull off the pay-per-view, and I was shut down by Turner Broadcasting, by the way. It wasn't that I couldn't pull it off. I had pulled it off. I got Gene Simmons and Kiss. I got the Fiesta Bowl on board. I got the pay-per-view companies on board. I couldn't get Turner, the company, on board because too many employees complained about having to work over the Christmas and New Year holiday. They put up such a fit that I actually had corporate executives higher up than me tell me that I just they wouldn't support it. Had they supported it, had that pay-per-view happened, I do believe it it would have been hugely successful and everybody would have had a different perspective on Kiss's involvement in WCW because the outcome would have been different. But being shut down in the middle of it, it was doomed to failure. But to your, to your question, I enjoyed my negotiations with With Gene, my first meeting with him was at the Beverly Hills Hotel over in Rodeo, and I walked in and he had a little, yeah, the whole section of the back, you know, the bar. It wasn't like four o'clock in the afternoon, so it wasn't busy. So he had his own little booth in the back, and he had it was just stacked, you know, almost to the ceiling with kiss merchandise. I thought, wow, this guy's. this guy's committed <laughs> no,
0: that he is.
1: and it was so cool. And I, I got along with him fine. And, and I liked, I liked it. I liked the whole process. just unfortunate. I couldn't see it through the way I wanted to.
0: Now, this is probably, you know, a lot of comics are huge wrestling fans and, uh, all of them when they found out I was having you on, uh, to me, the greatest swerve in wrestling history is you as the minister at the Billy and Chuck, uh, commitment ceremony. That was awesome. Um, it seemed like none of them knew who knew that you were the minister seemed like it was a very kept like no one in the ring knew outside of i'm assuming stephanie
1: stephanie knew stephanie knew and i'm not sure anybody else knew i'm not sure if any of the talent knew i would imagine they did um chuck and billy in particular I would imagine they did because it was an aftermath that had to happen. Right, you know. Once I revealed myself, so I imagine the wrestlers did know, but I'm almost certain they didn't know right up until probably the last couple, maybe an hour or two before the show. Um, I can tell you for sure nobody else knew because I I went to the arena. It was in Minneapolis actually, and where I, I, I lived for a long time, and I went to the arena. I must've got there about nine in the morning. Now, typically we didn't show up talent didn't show up till noon or one o'clock. If I remember right. Um, uh, but I showed up at eight or nine in the morning cause I was in a makeup chair for five hours and I wanted to be in full makeup before anybody else showed up because right. I didn't want people to see that it was me. I didn't want anybody to know. So I got there early. We got into the makeup and I walked around all day, literally just effing with people because they didn't know who I was. I looked like this old, broken, you know, senile old man, and I was walking up to people and just saying some of the most horrendous shit you can imagine to them, trying to get a reaction out of them. And, you know, people don't react to 75 or 80-year-old men the way they would react to a 25 or 30-year-old man. You know, you can walk up and say anything you want and get away with it. And the the one story that I'll tell you, and I've, I've told it before, but it's still so funny. It's funny to me, and I've told it a million times. But I had a, have a, a good friend that I gr- I knew in high school by the name of Brad Ringens. Brad was a professional wrestler. Uh, he also wrestled on the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team. Uh, then then was a professional wrestler. Worked for the Virginia and AWa and then went on and worked for the WWF for a long time. And we we just always been friends. We hunt together and fish together. Or used to. And Brad showed up at the arena a couple hours early. And he had, I think they were his two nieces with him. Uh, they are either his nieces or they were daughters of a girl he was seeing. I really can't remember. But he he brought them backstage, and he got back there really early. And he was just kind of walking around, sometimes the way people do. And I kind of shuffled up to him in full makeup. I said, like, hey, Brad, I know you. Who are these cute little girls you have with you (laughs) they are very very lovely (laughs) and and brad just looked at he didn't know what to do now because he didn't know it was me he thought it was this old man hitting on these two little girls that he's with (laughs) i said you little girls would you like me to show you around the arena huh (laughs) And, and i walked away and I could just see the look on Brad's face. He didn't know what what to think of it. And then later on that night, when I revealed after I revealed myself, I saw Brad backstage, and he, I think he wanted to take my head off because he he just didn't know. And I I was doing the same thing. I did the same thing to Eddie Guerrero backstage. Walked right up to him said some ridiculous stuff to him, just trying to get a rise out of him. And he just he didn't know what to do. He just walked away from me.
0: Well, even during the segment when you were speaking, I I didn't know it was you. I mean, it was just fabulous acting. I have to be honest with you. And Enrico uh, has the, the, I guess, semi-gay uh, wedding planner was the, everyone's part was so amazing in that. Segment. It was fun.
1: It's still when I look back of, and I've done. I've been blessed to to have an opportunity to do a lot of great things on camera that were really really fun. And it's hard to pick one that was my favorite because they were, they're like children, you know, they're right. your, each one has something about them that's that's special to you in a different way. Um But that, if it's not my favorite, it has to be one of them. And, you know, every once in a while, people will send me a clip of that on Twitter or Facebook or something, and I'll see it again for the 500th time. And I still laugh my ass off when I see it. It still makes me chuckle.
0: Oh, when you dropped the book, did <laughs> I just say three minutes and, and just <laughs> – I mean, wrestlers. Uh, that's what why I loved wrestling so much as a kid. Is the acting was—you mm-hmm. really believed—and uh, everyone in that ring that night was was just. I mean, I really thought Billy and Chuck were going to get married. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> and they were on Good Morning America. I mean, that was a huge storyline. It was great it because was great. Uh, you know of the uh, you know the, the gay angle, and uh, I was—I think everyone thought they were going to get married.
1: I, I, it it was so great for so many reasons. And, and everybody's perform, everybody's, everybody's performance in that ring that night and the creative that went behind it was just so on the money. And here's another great thing about working for the WWE. um, And I have to give them a lot of credit because they deserve it. When the idea came up to, to do this and to put me in a mask, they flew me from wherever I was at the time. I don't remember where I was. I must've been in Phoenix. They flew me out to LA and I went to one of the, uh, probably one of the best makeup artists in studios um, in Hollywood. You know, I mean, I walked into their studio and I'm looking at the things that they had done in the past. And this is stuff that, you know, harkened me back to all the movies, and you know, horror movies and all these different things that I've seen. They were the ones that produced, you know, that that makeup and that, that mask for me. And it was extensive. It took six or eight hours for me just to get fitted for that mask and the makeup that went with it. And then it took another four or five hours to put it on in Minneapolis a couple of weeks later.
0: Oh, it was amazing. Um, now, like... Mentioned being a kid like liking wrestling it was before the internet, so like of course there's Kamala's book right in front <laughs> right of in you. Front of me. Uh, so when I was a kid, there was no internet. Kamala was billed as being from Uganda. I believed it because there was no, you know. Now if someone's billed as being from Uganda, you can look up their Wikipedia page and oh, they're from you know Pittsburgh, Broadway, New Jersey. What's up right. with that? <laughs> so, you know, do you think the internet has uh, hurt? the the allure of wrestling being not real but like the the storylines like you, you it it almost ruins like when warrior came back it, some guy posted on a wrestling site oh i just saw the ultimate warrior i think it was in buffalo mm-hmm. he, he had his gear on i was like oh i guess he's coming back tonight so do you think the internet has hurt wrestling
1: i think it's changed wrestling i, I think it's it's hurt certain aspects of the of the industry you know you, in my book, I, I and I've talked about this a lot outside of my book, but story, anticipation, surprise, um, reality, and action. you know I mean, those are the five elements. The acronym is Sarsa, you know right. but if if a story can have, All five of those elements, it's a home run. You could literally build your company around it, and you can be successful for years and years with a storyline if you can successfully achieve all five of those elements, which is really hard to do. Four out of the five is a great story. You may get six months out of it, maybe a little longer. Three out of five, uh, it'll last a month or so. It'll be, it's good filler. But if you can't get at least three out of five of those elements to a story, then you're probably just chasing your tail. And what has happened with the Internet is one of the critical elements, two of the critical elements in that formula is anticipation and surprise. Right. And if you think about it, you know, it's our culture. It's human nature. You know, when you're a little kid. You know, you look forward to a holiday, you look forward to your birthday, you look forward to whatever you're looking forward to as a kid, because that's what you do. You just oh, what's next? You know, I get my first bike, I get my first whatever. As you get older, it's, oh, I can't wait to get my first my driver's license or get my first car or get laid for the first time or whatever your first thing is that you're looking forward right. to, you're anticipating it. And it's part of our nature. And people love surprises. It's one of the things that when I was doing research and focus groups, trying to figure out a great formula for nitro so that it was different than the WWE, the one thing that I kept hearing in every focus group I did was surprise. We want that, that we want that feeling of anything can happen. We don't want it to be predictable. I heard that over and over and over again, so much so that on the top of all of the things, the list that I made, of all the characteristics that our format had to have to be different than the WWE surprises right at the top of it, which is why I did what I did with Lex Luger, which is why wow. I did what I did when I was giving away finishes. Cause I was doing something that nobody expected. I was surprising them in, in a controversial way. And what the internet has done is it's made it almost impossible to achieve that element of surprise. And if you don't have the element of surprise kind of, bred into your content and your programming formula then it's really hard to create anticipation so that's what i think the internet has done. it's made it almost impossible to get two of those three elements now it doesn't mean you can't but it's so hard so hard
0: well you did i mean how did you keep hogan turning bad guy uh i mean that was a huge surprise i mean uh Mm -hmm i didn't tell anybody that's the only way i was thinking. who knew just you and him pretty much and i'm assuming uh, hall and nash
1: no hall and well hall and Nash knew shortly before very shortly like maybe a day or two
0: because wasn't uh i've heard that um in the formation of, or the early uh beginnings of the nwo sting was possibly considered uh to, to be, which would have been cool to see him as a, I guess, a bad guy, but not, I mean, Hogan was like, it'd never been done before.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, here's, here's the story with that. Going back at that time, Hogan only had four pay-per-views a year in his contract. We we couldn't afford to use them anymore. Like he was paid per pay-per-view and there were four of them built into his contract. There were four of them built into my budget and he had already had a couple of them under his belt, and we weren't going to use them again until October or December. So we had to figure out a great story without utilizing Hogan. And Hulk was off doing a movie. He was, he was here in California doing a movie called Santa with Muscles, by the way. <laughs> and we just went about our business. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll put this in a little bit of clearer context. I had gone to Hulk months before and asked him to consider turning heel. Because the red and yellow thing, the babyface Hulk Hogan thing, just wasn't working in WCW. And he knew that.
0: And why do you think it wasn't?
1: I just, I think part of it is the WCW audience was a little bit of a different culture. They they didn't really like feeling like they should look up to this WWE or WWF right. character in the same way. So I think there was a little bit of just, well, we're just not going to react the way you want us to kind of vibe. And I think the character was tired. They had seen it a lot and they just weren't buying into it the way they did five or 10 years earlier. It had worn out and Hulk knew it. And I knew it. Everybody knew it, but nobody wanted to admit it. So Hulk went off to go and, and, and do movies. And then I set about, the nwo storyline and hulk was literally watching it i think jimmy hart was sending him vhs tapes right. after every show and because he was out he was in a very remote area on location and hulk was watching tapes of what hall you know what happened with scott hall when he showed up and then you know kevin nash power bombing me off of the stage That's in great. baltimore so i had his interest right but i didn't plan on him coming and i had asked him to turn heel months previous to that and hogan politely, you know, showed me the door and thanked me for coming to Florida. And his exact words were, man, you'll never get it until you walk a mile in my red and yellow boots. You'll never get it. But he was nice about it. And he, like I said, he showed me the door and that was the end of it. Went off to do a movie. I set about doing the NWO angle, and then I got a phone call from Hulk. He said, uh, Eric, why don't you come to California? I'd like to talk to you about what's going on. So I said, sure. I like going out to LA. I'll come out. I went out. I went to his trailer. He had a case of beer and a box of Cuban cigars. about midnight by the time I got there. And we fired up a cigar, cracked a couple beers. And he said, so who's the third guy going to be? I said, well, who do you think it should be? Because I didn't want to tell him. He said, you're looking at him, brother. I said, ah, okay. But what I had done, because I didn't know up until that point, that was probably only about a month before the angle went down. So prior to that, um, I went to Sting and said, "Sting, I need you to be the third guy. I, I here's why. Here's what we're doing." And Sting was all, all he was on board. Sting was going to do it
0: because he had been a a, a baby face for mm-hmm. uh, in, since the beginning. Yeah,
1: and he was up for it. He because he saw what was happening with the NWO. He saw the energy, and you know, he was ready to change his character. He was, you know, he was he's just a, a wonderful person and a real pro in that respect. Um, but then when Hogan tagged in, I had to go to sting and say, here's the situation. Hogan's willing to do it, ready to do it. What do you think? And he agreed Hogan doing it would have been, would have been bigger, but I didn't know for certain that Hulk would actually follow through and do it until he showed up in the building that night. My experience with Hulk would be that at that time was that he would second guess himself a lot. And what that really means is there were certain people around him that would get in his ear, his, his ex-wife, not being the smallest voice in the room that (laughs) would get in his ear and make him second guess his decisions, no matter what they were. So I'd get a commitment, you know, on a Monday and by Wednesdays, no, no, no brother can't do that. So I didn't know for sure whether he'd actually do it right up until the last minute. But Sting was standing there ready to go the day of the show to be that third guy just in case Hogan had a change of heart. Right. And that, to me, you know, if if he deserves a spot in the WWE Hall of Fame just for being that much of a professional.
0: So, I mean, basically, if Hogan uh, would have, you know, whatever his wife or what ex wife uh, put it in his ear, don't do it, Sting would have turned on Luger, Luger and Macho Man in the match. And, oh, okay.
1: Sting would have been the guy, wow, he had to have plan B, brother.
0: <laughs> was there a plan c i mean was there like a okay. no, I didn't go that
1: far. I knew I could count on sting. I knew right. I didn't need a plan C.
0: Is it tough to get guys to change their character once they you know are so identifiable you know like a you know macho man or uh, you know sting certainly hogan it, is is it do you think they're scared of well they know me as this?
1: I don't think they're scared. I think they're smart. You know, it's not like being an actor where you can play a different role in every movie you're in, um, or a different type of character in every movie you're in. Um, when you're a wrestler, you know, the audience identifies with that character. They support that character and they stick with that character. It takes a long time to get their support as we talked about earlier and to get them, get their following. But once you do, um, they feel like they own you to a degree. Right. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, they relate so much to that character. It's a part of their life. So guys like sting Hogan, I'm sure John Cena, stone cold, Steve Austin undertaker, you name them, bill Goldberg. Once you get guys that reach that level, they're very aware of how hard it was to get there. Right. And they're very protective of it because they don't want it. They don't want to fail. It's taking a long time to get where they got. They do not want to, they don't want to screw it up. It's not like oh, if it doesn't work, I can come back as that old character and right. everybody will forget. No, they won't. If you build yourself up as a character, and you get everybody to love you, and you turn heel, and they just crap on it. Good luck coming back. Right, you can reinvent yourself once, but it's hard to reinvent yourself twice.
0: Like was it tough? You know, when the NWO really hit. When did you first know it was like, wow, this was a great idea? Like that night when there was a riot in the ring, almost.
1: Well, no, no I knew. I realized, I realized that it was going to be a successful storyline in Baltimore when I got power bombed off the stage by Kevin Nash. That's when I knew we were, we hit it. We made, we made contact with the ball and I knew it was good contact. I wasn't sure it was going to go out of the park, but I knew, I knew we were going to get at least a triple out of it. Um, and then certainly when the pay-per-view event went down and Hogan turned and they were throwing garbage in the ring, that, then I knew that the ball was not only out of the park; no one was going to find it.
0: I mean, there's a guy in the white t- in a white t shirt crying because he was so like, wow,
1: it was amazing, wasn't it? And I, you know, I I remember the feeling that I had, and I, and I was way back for I think I might have been up in like the cheapest seats in the in the building, or even up behind that, kind of peeking through a curtain. And it was just such an amazing feeling, seeing all of that emotion, anger and pain and hurt and disappointment and people cheering and throwing stuff in the ring. And it was just, I don't know. I've never experienced anything like that before. And I'm hopefully I'll experience something like that again, but I doubt it.
0: I mean, that to me is the greatest speech ever uh, because you could tell Hogan, I don't know if he had it planned, but it was just, if he didn't, it was the best improv speech I've ever.
1: No, heard let me tell you. I'll tell you a quick story about that because I don't know how much time we have.
0: Well, I, I mean, how are you on time? To, i talked for hours. I'm
1: gonna be back Saturday, so
0: great. Well, so this is gonna be a three day <laughs> podcast. So
1: when Hogan got to the building, because I didn't really want him to get to the building early, because I didn't want anybody to see him. Remember, right. he had been out of. You know, he had been out of sight. Nobody had seen him, been off doing a movie. As far as everybody was concerned, both internally and externally, Hogan was nowhere near the radar. And I didn't want him showing up to the building so people could say, oh, I wonder if he's the third guy. I didn't even want the question out there. So I didn't want Hulk to show up until after the show actually started because he wasn't on until the end. So when he got there, I didn't have a lot of time to work with him. Um, and rehearse his promo. And back at that time, he he relied on me to help him through his interviews, and we rehearsed together. And I was kind of his, I was his mean Gene Okerlund. He was comfortable with me. I was a blanket he was comfortable being with at that point. So I took him back, and we were literally back in a closet. We were in a utility closet because I wanted to be away from everybody. I didn't want anybody to hear what we were about to do. And I started rehearsing his promo with him. And believe it or not, up until that point, I hadn't considered what to call this organization. I didn't feel like it needed. I I hadn't given the thought that it needed a name. So I didn't even, there was no name for that organization up until the moment in that closet when I'm going through Hogan's um, promo with him. And that's when the words, and this is the new world order that the first time it rolled off my tongue was the first time it popped into my head and right. i don't even know where it came from other than you know i've done a lot of reading and things like that right. so i'm sure it sure, you know referenced my memory you know from something i had read a long time ago but when the words rolled out of my mouth i went whoa that's pretty badass that'll stick and that, that's what we went with it maybe an hour and a half before the promo is when wow. we came up with the name new world order and hulk went out there and you know he just nailed it. He hit it right on the head.
0: He just really, you could tell it was like a little bit more energy and, you know, not an anger, but like, yeah, I made that company rich up there and, you know, I was selling out the world when you guys were bumming gas to put in your car to get to high school. I mean, that's a great line. Dude.
1: Well, and, and because it's true. Yeah. I mean, here's, yeah. here's the greatest part about what, what I used to do and, and, and occasionally still try to do once in a while is you know when you create a storyline or a character for me I should say when I create a storyline or a character for someone I look for something that's kind of inherent to their their real world and their real personality because we're not actors you know we act and we perform and we're pretty good at what we do out there on our platform in a live setting um, but we're not skilled actors or actresses really so the way you the way you bring somebody up to, to reach their highest potential is you create characters and storylines that are real to them and are honest to who they really are. So they don't have to dig that deep. They don't have to go into, you know, a method acting kind of mentality and become a character because they already are. That's why Randy Savage was so great at what Randy did because 80% of what you saw was Randy Savage's real personality. He wasn't that much different out of the ring than he was in it. The volume was a little higher. It was a little more intense, in the ring than out of the ring but shades of gray (laughs) right you know hulk hogan was a little different you know hulk hogan is a genuinely nice person he doesn't have a violent bone in his body i don't think he would step on a cockroach he would try to shoot out the door instead that's who he really is and you know he played this larger than life character that you know dropped the big boot and all that kind of stuff but there's also a side of Hulk that is that NWO guy. He just always had to keep it inside. Right. He had to be that other character. So when we gave him an opportunity to, to just let that part of him out and say the things that he really f- felt inside, but to turn up the volume and put a little, you know, little shiny paint on it, make it a little different than maybe how he really felt, just turn up the volume a little bit, it worked so well for him, and it felt real because it was real.
0: That oh, was amazing, and like w- with the emergence, uh, and I know you got to go in a few minutes. I, I mean, no, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I could talk to you all day. Uh, with the emergence of the NWO, we talked about earlier, guys like Sting and 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 Hogan being protective of their characters. Uh, you know, the Four Horsemen were kind of the uh, like I should say almost precursor of the NWO in terms of being the bad guy faction. Was it hard to go to say Rick Flair and, and uh, Mongo McMichael, I think was him at the time and go, Hey guys, this is going to be the new bad guy faction. You guys kind of have to play second fiddle to them.
1: Well, so it wasn't with Mongo it was a great guy. He was easy. He just wanted to have fun. Oh, he was great. Uh, he just wanted to have fun. It was a little different for Rick and Arn Anderson. Right. Um, and not so much because they were the original, you know, bad guy faction as it was, the formula with the NWO was a different formula. And I was talking to somebody in the WWE the other day about this. Um, the, when we brought the NWO to the dance, it changed the psychology, the dynamics of creative psychology. Because up until that point, heels were liars, cowards, <laughs> cheaters, and thieves, Right. And when ultimately when they were confronted with a good guy who wasn't going to stand for their crap and they could no longer pull any more, you know, heel rabbits out of their heel hats, the, the good guy prevailed. Well, with the NWO, we changed that dynamic and it made for very, very uncomfortable performers because the formula was out the window. The psychology was out the window. The way they normally laid out matches to get the reactions that they wanted to get from the audience and tell the story they wanted to tell, all of a sudden was turned on its head because the heels, the bad guy faction, were so freaking cool that they became de facto baby faces in the process. Right. Which left your baby faces, from a psychology point of view, storytelling point of view, standing there, you know, with their units in their hands going, oh. <laughs> what do I do right. to, to get my steam back? That's what really probably left more people like Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, Anderson uncomfortable at that time, along with some lack of respect, I think, on, on my part, admittedly. You know, I didn't take into consideration their feelings, their points of view, their characters as probably as much as I should have or could have at that time. So between, you know, the talent being a little uneasy with, the creative formula the psychological formula and kind of feeling like they were getting run over the top by me and the NWO and other people in the process. There was some real political animosity going on backstage.
0: Well, I mean, was it cause I mean, the NWO got so big, so fast. Did it become bigger than you expected? Yeah.
1: And as we discussed earlier, it became too big eventually, but it was so successful. I mean, to this day, if you go, I mean, watch WrestleMania Sunday, you know, and let's compare notes, you know, how many NWO shirts are you going to find in the audience? Right. You know, there's still merchandise out there. People are still, I go to events to this day and people are people still coming up and flashing a wolf tag or wolf, uh, right. wolf pack sign and giving me, you know, the NWO routine. It's still out there 20 years later. It still resonates.
0: It you know, the greatest heel turn ever. I mean, it was just like that you go back to talking about surprises and it was like no one saw it coming and to me that's what's lacking uh now. It's like there's there's really no surprises and like
1: it's hard to get a surprise. I mean, Shane McMahon showing up, you know, on Raw a while back a couple of weeks ago, that was a surprise. I thought it was cool. Didn't expect it. Uh they kept it pretty quiet. But it's, it really is hard to, to, to create surprises, as we discussed. And the other thing is, you know, and the WWE is so successful. It's hard to be critical of them. Um, and what I'm about to say isn't really a criticism. It's just an awareness and a perspective that I have. But it's too slick. It's too good. It's just too good in, in its production quality. You know, one of the things I like about live TV is, you know, that sense that anything can happen. It needs to feel a little gritty. It needs to feel a little edgy. It's okay if you see a camera or a lighting stand fall over on set once in a while because that's what happens in real life. And it makes you realize you're watching something that's happening in this moment. But when you go to the extreme, in my opinion, that the WWE has to be so glossy and perfect in your presentation, it really doesn't matter whether it's live or not. And in, sometime, in some cases, people probably don't, don't even know it's live. It looks like it's been in a post production facility for two weeks, you know, when you see it. It's that clean. I wish it was a little grittier. Yeah. I wish that we had more surprises. I wish that we focused more on anticipation and, and reality. Just the little things, the little nuances that make a story believable. It's not that hard. It doesn't always have to be a Hulk Hogan turn or an NWO idea. It can just be little things that you almost don't even perceive when they're happening. But you walk away feeling like, wow, this, this could be true.
0: I mean, do you think the problem with the writing process is, like, to me, they're not bringing in wrestling. Not that you want a wrestling fan writing a huge storyline. But, like, they're bringing in these Hollywood guys who maybe aren't necessarily wrestling fans. So they don't understand the the psychology of the fan who they want to buy the pay-per-view and the t-shirts and and, and whatnot.
1: You know, and I, I brought in a couple guys, and I can't remember the names and I wish I could because um, they were great guys. I brought in a couple writers from Hollywood um, that had great success here in different different genres, and I brought them in. and They were wrestling fans, and they were great. They did so many great things, but they didn't get the psychology. It's the one thing they didn't understand because the psychology in wrestling is just a little bit different. And they didn't get it, and I couldn't teach it to them because it's not something that you can teach in a week or month or six months. Um, But I think the problem that perhaps, so I'm not there, so I don't know, but I think the problem perhaps is not that there's anything wrong with the writers. It's just the sheer volume. It's sheer volume. And probably a lack of focus on key elements that just historically work in wrestling.
0: Well, I mean, I once, uh, I don't, I'm not going to name drop, you know, but I will. Uh, I once had a meeting with Shane McMahon where he saw, he had seen my comedy. And he's like, Oh, you're a wrestling fan. Uh, let's bring you in for meeting. And we had dinner once and uh, said, what kind of storyline would you come up with? I'm like, Oh, typical uh, bad guy versus good guy. Bad guy cheats, does everything he can to win the last, you know, five minutes of the match. The good guy gets almost like these superhuman powers and, combats the forces of evil and <laughs> he just shakes his head at me and goes uh we're not really about that right now <laughs> and he whipped out his phone and showed me the current storyline i'll never forget it was uh triple h versus kane uh, kane didn't want to fight him it's kind of like that rocky 2 storyline where uh, triple h was trying everything to get kane to fight him and then finally the last paper or last raw before the pay-per-view they show triple h going to a grave and uh in the storyline Kane had killed a girl drunk driving triple H is unbearing the body and you just see a silhouette of uh, some kind of act going on and Shane just looks at me and I'm like you know I don't think I'm the guy for you I just I couldn't come up with that storyline in a million years so I don't know I just and they
1: probably shouldn't have either
0: <laughs> I think that was Katie
1: Vick. yes that was Katie Vick, and I and I think you know and I don't know I I would imagine if you ask Triple H what was one of the most embarrassing storylines he'd ever been in, I think that probably had to be it. I would hope that that was it because I was there then at that time. And I remember watching backstage Triple H, you know, climbing into the coffin and, you know, mounting the corpse. And I just went, man, for me, it's not that I, you know, I'm not, I don't have any purian interests. you know, not, not, not any of that, but it's like, Where's the believability? Come on, how are you how can you possibly convince yourself that this storyline is going to allow viewers to drop their guard,
0: right? Suspend
1: their disbelief and invest themselves in something this corny? It's just
0: dumb. I mean, I don't mind corny. You know, like when they had uh, May Young giving birth to uh, Mark Henry's baby. You know, okay, I get it. That's a
1: But you knew going in, it was corny. It It was was a hand to be corny. It wasn't set up to be serious and then turn corny. Right. It, it was a, it was a comedy skit. It was, it was meant to be lighthearted. It was meant to be tongue in cheek and it was great because that's what it was designed to be. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of stuff. You know, wrestling is a three hour show. If you don't create a creative buffet, in, in terms of your characters and your stories and have a little bit of comedy over here and a little bit of believable believability over here and a little bit of, you know, sexual tension over here. And, you know, you got to have it all. You can't just have one type of storytelling technique. I get that. But you also, I don't believe, I don't, I also don't believe it's possible to try to create reality and believability intensity and then add a little bit of, add an element of corniness on top of it and expect people to buy into right. it. Just It's a contract. It doesn't work.
0: Now, let's wrap up with just a few quick thoughts. Uh, when another wrestler puts another wrestler over, it can make their career. Like when Hogan dropped the strap mm-hmm. to Goldberg, sold out Georgia Dome, which might have been the hottest crowd I've ever seen in my life. Uh, that made Goldberg. How hard is it to come to a guy or a girl, I guess, in, in some situations and not tell them, Hey, your career is kind of, you know, either winding down or, you know, it, it's, we need to get this new younger person. Is it, is that, is that a hard phone call or face to face meeting to have?
1: No. And actually that was Hulk's idea, not mine. Hulk, I was here. I was. I, you know, it's funny. There are moments that I can, I can, rem- I can't tell you what I ate for breakfast yesterday. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you where I I was driving on the 90 in Marina del Rey when I got the phone call from Hulk saying, hey, I got an idea for Atlanta. Let's do this. That was his idea, not mine. Because he knew it was the right time. He knew it was going to be a hot crowd. He knew that it was time. So it was his idea.
0: Because that's WCW. uh, I mean, that's their bullseye in terms of their fan base in in Atlanta.
1: Yeah, and I think we sold... I don't know what the number was. Somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand tickets for that.
0: And a great Rodman was involved, and Mister Perfect and uh, DDP. It was just like, and you, it made you love Goldberg. Mm-hmm. It, versus today, like some of the older guys. I, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with TNA right now, but so speaking WWE specific, seems like uh, some of the older guys don't want to put anyone over. So
1: it's that old school mentality. You know, you're afraid you're not going to get it back. You're afraid you're not going to get that position again. You know, you're holding on to it's security, it's job security. And it probably happens in corporate world all the time. It probably happens in, in your industry oh. all the time. Nobody wants to give up that limelight in that right. spot.
0: And oh, for it's sure. it's so different right. with wrestlers. Now, when you, how surreal was it for you? when you went to work for the WWE that first time after the Monday night wars was, mm-hmm. was it, um, not, I, I mean this completely not as a singer on you, but was it like a little bit of a, a tail between the legs of this is the company I, mm-hmm. you know,
1: no, no, it wasn't. It, it probably would have been a couple, you know, a year or two before, but when I went through what I went through at WCW and it ended for me the way that it did, I was very disappointed. I was disappointed in myself. First and foremost, because I knew I should have left under my own terms a year or two prior and I, and I didn't, I second guessed myself and my instinct and and I was angry at myself for doing so because it obviously didn't end well for me Uh, and it could have. So I was angry with myself or disappointed more than anything with myself, but I'd gotten over it. You know, I'm fortunately I'm the type of person that I just don't dwell on the past. I can't do anything about it. It's already done. It's over with. I either learn from it and and it benefits me going forward, or if it creates hurt or pain for me, I just quit thinking about it. It's that simple. And I had quit thinking about it. I had accepted it and moved on. I expected my life to be. It was here in Los Angeles. I was producing television. Um, I had no intention of ever getting back in the wrestling business again. And when I got the call from Vince McMahon, actually, I forgot all about this. I had actually gotten a call a year before from JR asking me to come in and do something with the WWE. And I just wasn't ready. I mean, physically, I wasn't ready. I was in Wyoming I had 20 or 30 people at my house for the 4th of July. I, I, I was probably 30 pounds overweight and probably had a buzz on when, when he called yeah. me and they wanted me to jump on a plane and be there two days later. And I, I said, man, I, I can't, I just can't horrible timing. I can't. And I thought, well, that's it. Nobody ever, how many people <laughs> get a call from the WWE to come in and, you know, do something on pay-per-view and then turn them down, which is what I did. So I didn't expect to ever hear from them again, but when Vince called me and he called me himself, uh, I didn't have someone else do it. I, I was on that phone call for maybe three minutes I went, wow, this, this could be awesome because it gave me the opportunity to end my career on a positive note. I knew I was coming in as nothing more than a talent. And I say that no more, no less than a talent. Uh, But I was coming in at a high profile. I was going to get to perform on the largest stage in our industry. I was going to be working with some of the best performers in the industry at that time. And I knew I was pretty good at it. And I knew that I could have fun doing it and ended on a positive note. So when I got there, I I was ex- as excited as I was the first time I had a, a, a gig in the wrestling business. I felt nothing but positive about it.
0: Was there any, uh, you know, I know that toward the end of your WCW, was it like a bad relationship with a woman like where it's like you should have left a little earlier, but you... you, you... It
1: was worse than that. <laughs> it was worse than that. I knew in 98, and I've written about this you know, in my book, I knew in 98 when things were still going really well, I knew the handwriting was on the wall for me. I saw what was happening. The AOL Time Warner merger was beginning to manifest and have its impact on not only WCW, but a lot of other divisions within Turner Broadcasting. And I knew when I was having my budgets that were previously approved six months in advance or a year in advance, in some cases, I was having my budgets arbitrarily cut dramatically, not by a couple 10, 20, 40,000 here or there, but by tens of millions of dollars being erased from my budget for no other reason that they wanted to allocate those resources to another division so that the overall Turner Broadcasting EBITDA, uh, which is an accounting term, would reflect more favorably on other divisions and raise stock value. That's what that was about. And when I saw that, I fought it. I I mean, I, I was a belligerent son of a bitch. Because in, in my past at WCW, at Turner Broadcasting, you know, after a while, if somebody up above me, a senior executive above me, would try to, you know, force something onto me that I didn't want, I would fight it through the executive committee level. And if I had to, I'd fight it all the way up to Ted Turner because I knew most of the time I would probably win that fight. If, if I was justified, right. I had Ted's support. What I didn't know back in 98 and 99 is that Ted was no longer in charge of his own company. Ted didn't even know it at that time. There were so many things going on politically and corporately around Ted between Gerald Levin and Steve Case and all the people around them um, that Ted Turner was standing on the rug and it wasn't being pulled out from underneath him. It was being unwoven behind his back and he didn't even realize it. Right. And I wish I would have left in 98 because I wanted to. I had made up my mind I was going to, and I, I talked myself out of it. And I stayed for another year, a little more than a year, and it was brutal. It was really brutal. I, I've never been in so much mental and emotional pain as I was then. I was just, it was just getting, like getting the shit kicked out of you every single day. Actually, it's worse, because I've had that happen, and that's not nearly as bad. It was tough.
0: And I imagine if you're feeling that way, then the wrestlers are feeling that way. It must have been a toxic uh, not even locker room, but just,
1: oh, I mean, everybody It was, it was it, toxic is a perfect word for it. And it was in the office. It, 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 my assistants could see it. You know, everybody around me could see it. Um, it was bad. It was really bad.
0: And then the WWE at that time was, uh, I guess with the, uh, attitude era was in full force then. And, yeah. um, you know, that probably made it even worse.
1: It di- it did, you know, and it, for me i mean it made it worse for me because number one they were beating me at my own game right they, they i forced them to change their formula and move away from teen and preteen type of presentations and, and change their creative business model so that they were now going after my 18 to 34-year-old male audience in a more adult and contemporary kind of a format. And the fact that I was getting my, my ass kicked with the with the formula that I created, yeah, that, right. that really stung. Because I'm competitive that way. I'm very competitive. But the part that really bothered me the most was the fact that corporately I was being abandoned. No one cared because no one wanted WCW to succeed. You have to keep in mind, there were executives in Turner Broadcasting that wanted WCW to go away before I ever before I ever got the job there.
0: It's because it was rest like these upper crust executives were like uh, they hated pro, it pro wrestling. They
1: hated it. It wasn't cool. They didn't want to talk about it at the country club. It wasn't. It. They were embarrassed by it, and you know prior to be getting in charge, you know there was Bill Watts and he said a lot of you know really stupid stuff that would get him you know fired from anybody at at, the, at this stage of, of things. But, you know, a lot of embarrassing things, took a lot of bad publicity, Turner Broadcasting did, and they were losing $10 million a year on top of it. So it had no support uh, except for Ted.
0: Now, I know we've briefly talked about it. You know, do you think there'll ever be a company that can compete with the WWE? Like, I know TNA has had their moments of, you know closeness you know
1: no not really I, I, well, I was trying to be nice. disagree you don't have to be nice i really can't talk about them because i'm in litigation oh them, then so, never mind so i can't say too much but to answer your question no i don't think that another company will will be able to challenge wwe they're two you know they're on the number one cable network you know i think number one or number two cable networks they have been for 25 years or however long it's been. They're so well established in the pay-per-view industry. They've got their own network for crying out loud with over a million subscribers at $10 a head. So they've got their own distribution now if they absolutely need it. Um, they're just too big. And it's not that someone couldn't come along who had enough money and had enough support um, to, to beat them creatively or strategically but you'll never find another television network that it would be willing to make that level of commitment again because it just won't happen
0: i mean like to me to go up against them is exactly what you guys had in wcw it, to me it's a four-step process of you need a short term plan which was you might consider the nw or signing the free agents you know bringing over the Hogan's the the roots, the Macho Man's people would name recognition. Where a guy like me would go, oh, Macho Man's at WCW now. I'm going to watch that. And then you know maybe the mid midterm plan was the NWO storyline, and the, the cruiserweights. I mean, you guys certainly featured them. You know the the Guerreros, the Benoits, the Dean Malenko's, and then you need the money to implement all these plans, and then you need a long term plan. Right.
1: And you need a broadcast partner, a network, cable network, a television partner that is willing to make a long-term commitment. And it'll never happen. You know, in today's environment, you know, we're, we're in Hollywood for crying out loud. You go anywhere in this town and talk to a television executive and ask them how how long they would give a television show before they decide to pull the plug on it. And if a show isn't hot in the first three, four, five episodes of a new season, they're scrambling to replace it.
0: It's unbelievable.
1: It's really hard in in today's environment so to to think that you're gonna that anyone could get a an established cable outlet or network for that matter to make a long-term commitment and grow a brand over the course of five years or 10 years that'll never happen not in today's environment
0: is it similar to going up against say the ufc which they seem to almost be kind of wwe like that they buy up their competition like you know uh there's a company called bellator now that's kind of competing with them, but not really? Is it just, you know, they're just too big to go up against?
1: They got there first. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said for getting there first. You know, in, in UFC, they got there first. And they got there big, and they became very powerful. And I like Bellator. I watch Bellator. I'm familiar. You know, Scott Coker. you know, oh, he's? He's a great guy. I've known him since he was about 10 years old. I love him. He's a great guy and smart smart, smart guy, and, and a good human being. And I know some of the executives over at Spike that are part of the production, so I, I support them, and I like watching, I like MMA, I like, for the most part. Some of it I don't really enjoy, but...
0: What don't you enjoy about it?
1: Um, I like... I am hesitate because I don't want to be too critical because I know I'm going t- well, I'm I'm, I'm to take I'm going to take a beating for what I'm about to say. But you know, I spent time in the martial arts. I was I was a kickboxer. I appreciate really highly skilled kickers and punchers. And too often I see people in MMA that are presented as great strikers or great kickers who aren't. They just aren't. And I miss seeing really, really good athleticism when it comes to kicking and punching. Because it's dynamic to watch. It's fun. You know, watching you know, when Ronda Rousey, got, and I, I'm a big Ronda Rousey fan, so I wasn't happy to see her lose at all. But the technique that Holmes used to beat her
0: was so
1: perfect. Her footwork, now this is before the kick, if you watch her footwork, watch the way she controlled the ring, watch the way she just mastered um, the distance between her and Ronda Rousey, Um, that to me, I got really excited watching that because that's real skill. Not to say that a lot of other fighters aren't skilled because they clearly are, but it's the the type of skill that I enjoy watching and when then when she got knocked out when Rosick got knocked out with an absolutely picture perfect round kick delivered exactly on target it just could not have become more could not have been more perfect i like that when i see guys that are sloppy punchers and sloppy kickers being exalted as great strikers it kind of pisses me off a little bit and i love watching a good ground game i love you know i love watching Great amateur wrestling, collegiate wrestling. I watch it on TV when it's on. Um, I love that, but I really love watching good kicking and punching.
0: Did you enjoy Brock Lesnar going over from wrestling to basically dominating it? I mean, that was amazing to me to see him. He might have the greatest MMA card in history. I mean, he almost, he only fought champions.
1: Yeah, but it, it didn't work out so well for him, did it?
0: Well, I think... Uh... Now, this goes into the psychology of, uh, I I don't know him at all. Um, He seems to be, um, at least in the MMA world of his life, kind of a bully. Like, hey, I'm the biggest, baddest guy in here. And the guy, uh, Alistair Overeem, who beat him, he almost out-bullied him. Like, I'll never forget when they uh, came in before their match in the ring. Overeem stood in the middle of the ring and just stared at him like, you're in my world now. He
1: wasn't intimidated. Right. And that's the thing with, you know, and I, you know, I don't know Brock very well at all. I've, I've talked to Brock, you know, I've had occasion to spend a little bit of time with him, but I certainly don't know him. And I'm not being critical of him at all because he's a phenomenal athlete, Unbelievable. NCAA, NCAA you know, wrestling champion. He, he, he was a walk on the Minnesota Vikings, you know, he was a, played pro football in the NFL, at a very high level, performs at a very high level in WWE, performed at a very high level at, at UFC. So he, he's a, he's at a level of athletic performance that I can only dream about. But I will say this. When you get a guy like Brock Lesnar, who's been so successful, so big, so powerful, so intimidating, so successful at so many different levels, but has never really been punched in the head. It's interesting to see what happens to people that have never been punched in the head, no matter how big and jacked up they are and how tough they are and how tough they talk. If you've never been hit square on, on on the chin in a competitive situation in your life and you finally do, you see what people are really made of and Brock was not really good at taking shots. He well, was I'm good at gonna... giving them, but he wasn't too good at taking
0: them. Well, when Overeem hit him with the liver kick, uh, you actually could see uh Lesnar go ouch. Like I can't imagine doing anything to that man to make him feel pain, but but then on the flip side, Overeem, I think in his next fight, had that cock. he almost like a Rick Rude heel attitude and uh, Bigfoot Silva hated him uh, cuz Overeem was pretty disrespectful. And uh, then you saw Overeem get hit and go, oh, and he got knocked out. And I mean, it's that in real fighting, MMA, karate, kickboxing, it, is it almost more mental than your physical attributes? It's both.
1: It's both. And I'm certainly I never fought at that level. I can only imagine what it's like. But I, I do know even at the, the level that I competed at um, it is a, a mind over matter type. When you step into that ring and you know you're going to fight, pain is just not something that you're allowed to register. It's just, you you fight through it. Right. I mean, we trained that way. When I came up in, in karate, I trained at a particularly very aggressive, very physical school that wouldn't even be in business in today's environment. They would be sued 15 times a week. Um, like by the
0: Stu Hart dojo type yeah, of. It was uh,
1: ridiculous. I mean, they pry, they were all, all my instructors for, were for hardcore fighters from down in Texas. And their opinion of competing was, you know, spend the first two years knocking everybody out and getting disqualified. And then you'll have their respect. and It'll just be easier after that. That was, that was the mentality. So you learn, I learned early on is, you know, you get the wind knocked out, you get kicked in the ribs, you get broken ribs, you get punched in the head. You know, you, you love that. You embrace that. That's your fuel. Fight through that. Thank your opponent for kicking you that hard because now you really want to fight. You just train yourself to think that way. Or if you haven't, <laughs> then, you know, you get hit and you collapse.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it similar in the world of wrestling where uh, you might have a guy with a great body, you know, physically gifted, but they've never really been, say, given a, a Benoit suplex? Uh, like, did you have guys go, hey, I don't really like working with uh, Benoit because of those suplexes he gives me?
1: No, there's a pride in in our business or in the professional wrestling business where guys guys want to go. Guys, this general most of the people that I've, talk to about it. Yeah, you, know, you get some people that'll complain every once in a while, and, hey, brother, lighten up a little bit, brother. And Not to infer that that would be Hulk's point of view, because he liked it stiff, too. He liked to get in here, because he, they all want it to look real. They're in that ring. They, they're they five feet away from people in, in at ringside, right. or less sometimes. And they know the disappointment in that person's face when they see something that they go, oh you miss that by a mile and you're selling that. What are you doing? Right. They don't want to feel that. It's like, you know, they feel naked in there when they're, when they're doing that. So they want it to be believable. They want to convince people that it's real. And usually the stiffer it is, the easier it is. So most guys that I know that I can remember, they just love laying it in because it's more believable.
0: Well, I saw they recently had a WWE event at uh, the forum, which uh, was, I didn't know the forums having wrestling events anymore. And, uh, To see Brock Lesnar wrestle live, uh, he gave, uh, who was it, uh, Alberto Del Rio, like three or four suplexes. It was like, and you could tell, you're right, like, I'm not saying Del Rio enjoyed them, but it got him, like, into the match, and then he did it with that that, uh, Ukrainian wrestler Rusev, and Mm -hmm. it was just unbelievable to see uh, Lesnar that close live, and, uh, you know, it's like, Wow.
1: Okay. He's he is a he's just a freak of nature isn't
0: he? Would you say he's uh, the most physically gifted uh freak of nature uh, that you've ever seen in the At business?
1: And his size, no doubt. I mean, he's he's a one in a million, you know, for his size in particular. But there's a lot of guys there's a lot of guys in that ring right now on that roster that are way tougher than people know or give them credit for
0: being right no i was so impressed by like i said del rio just taking these unbelievable suplexes and and getting right back up getting another one and, and even reigns at wrestlemania i think he took about seven or eight uh, lesnar suplexes like wow this guy's fucking tough
1: yeah watch watch jericho and uh and aj Styles. you know they're they're too very you know chris is no young chicken either you know he's i don't know how old he is he's got to be 40 plus um but he's still real physical. He can take it. He can give it. He can take it. He, he can play either way. You know, uh, AJ's a
0: tough, oh, physical
1: guy. He's a great guy, too. He, by the way, he's a very, very good human being.
0: Are you glad he's in the WWE? Oh, kind hell of yeah. Getting his, not, not he shot. It. But.
1: No, he deserves it. He He's worked hard. He's a good human being. He's kept his nose clean. You know, he hasn't been distracted with all the other things that can, you know, take someone down. Um and he's focused and he's committed and he deserves it. I couldn't be happier for him.
0: Well, now, do you like the. You mentioned Scott Coker earlier. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love how he does things because, you know, UFC is like the, I don't want to say uh, legitimate MMA, but Scott seems to go with the more entertaining, uh, like recently, uh, Ken Shamrock, 51 years old. A lot of people maybe weren't uh, excited at <laughs> him being in a competitive UFC uh, MMA match against Royce Gracie. And then he had Kimbo slice against a guy by the name of Dada 5000. That was a mess. Did you see it? it? Yeah. I mean, what do you, do you think like going back to your promoting brain, do you think he goes, okay, we can't really compete with the quality of the UFC. We're going to give them a more like entertaining, like legit, but, more uh circus freak.
1: Well, it's kind of like what, what, what we talked about earlier. I, I think, and I don't know, I've never talked to Scott about this. I haven't had a conversation with Scott in so long. I can't remember, but you know, he's a smart guy. And I think you, you sit back, you go, look, okay, we've got a card. We've got some great legitimate, highly skilled athletes that are going to be performing. But there's a certain aspect of the audience that is nostalgic, that remembers the older names, and remembers a guy like Shamrock and would like to see him one last time. It's no different than, you know, why did people go to Creed? You know, why was everybody cheering Sylvester Stallone on as much as they were? Yes. It's because he did a phenomenal job acting, but it's really because damn it. It's a legacy. Oh,
0: absolutely. The guy.
1: And, and, People enjoy seeing that, so Scott gave it to him because there's an element of the audience that wants to see it. But he's not building his entire promotion around it; he's just offering it as garnish on a on a plate, and just makes the whole plate look a little better.
0: Well, I, I or you know, ho- hope to. <laughs> oh, listen, when you brought Warrior back, it was like brought so many childhood memories. Like it was, just, and I know it maybe didn't work out the way we all wanted, but it was. I get what you're saying, and if we could just finish up the last minute or two, uh, you kind of did something in the reality TV world that brought back a lot of memories for me in bringing back Adrian Smed. <laughs> that was fun, wasn't it? And uh, several other people. Confessions
1: of a teen idol,
0: yeah. <laughs> Do you like... Uh, I've always wondered when you're doing reality TV, is it hard to... Uh, Go to these celebrities who, you know, it's almost like wrestling, uh, who were huge at one time, big, whatever the right word is, and go, hey, we want to do a show based around you making a comeback. Is it hard to approach them? Or are they like, oh, what do you mean comeback? I'm still.
1: No, that's not been my experience. And, you know, to, to be honest about it, my partner, Jason Hervey, uh, who is the older brother in the Wonder Years. Oh, absolutely great guy great guy and a lot of those relationships were jason's relationships because he grew up with those guys you know he auditioned with them he partied with them he worked with them so a lot of those relationships specifically for that show confessions of a teen idol were jason's relationships and they were friends of his so that was easy for him my experience has been in in some of the celebrities that I've dealt with that were at one time, much bigger stars than they might currently be. Is it grateful for an opportunity to get out there and perform again? Just like I am. Right. I go to indie shows now, sometimes spontaneously with no promotion or advertising, just because I dig it. I get it. It reminds me of why I liked getting involved in wrestling in the first place because it's, it's raw. It's just pure. Nobody's there's no cameras. You know, there's not, 10,000 people in arena, there's no politics, there's nobody arguing over finishes, nobody trying to get their stuff in, just a bunch of people, guys, girls that are living their version of their dream. And I I, I love, show. I'm going to one, I went to one two weeks ago in Albuquerque, literally on a Friday night, I went, I'm going to go to that show. Got my car Saturday morning and drove nine hours to Albuquerque and went to an independent show with about 250, 300 people in the arena.
0: And people must have freaked out. They freaked out, and
1: I had the most fun I probably had in 15 years.
0: Because I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, Mr. Bischoff. You were the reason to me, and I'm not trying to kiss your ass, uh, why wrestling got good again, like because you gave the WWE, like, the foil to play off of and, and you were at, you were a great bad guy like you know when you first started the nwo and you come out there and you talk poorly about Sting, and 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 you know he came up from behind you now there's one video clip i might and you might not remember this it was uh one of the first times you were uh like the spokesman for the nwo and you were i think might have been the first time sting came up behind you and there was a moment where you were like, we couldn't find Sting. We went to the gym he used to work at. And you're looking up. And you're like, it's not going to happen, folks. And the crowd's really fucking booing you. And then Sting comes up from behind you. And there's a beer that gets thrown at you. Mm. And you looked pissed. Do you remember that at all? You're in the ring alone. And it didn't look like that beer was part of the program. You know?
1: No. It, it, and for, I don't remember that one because it's, it that happened more than once where I got stuff thrown at me like
0: that. So that was not when stuff would get thrown at you. That was not a mark in the crowd like who, okay, Eric, I'm going to throw this beer at you. I mean, that was like a real fan. No, it was
1: real. It was real. There was one occasion. Um, I remember, I think it was in, uh, I think we were in New Jersey. We might've been in Newark. And. Hulk and I were coming down the ramp, and I always came down before him. You know, and he was playing his guitar, and I'd bow down in front of him to you know do my my shtick, right? And I was about two feet ahead of him, and I remember out of the corner of my my eye seeing a bottle coming from way up high. I mean, way up high, and it went by my face, missed my face by about two or three inches, and hit the the concrete to my left, and it was a full bottle of beer. Had that bottle of beer hit me or Hulk in the head, um, it would have been, at, at the very least, lights out for, for the evening and could have been worse. So, yeah, it, it happened. People would throw batteries, D cell batteries. They were, that was a real popular uh, item to throw for a long time. And even coins. You know, people throw quarters, you know, or half dollars. You start th- winging those things from the cheap seats, and they've got some speed on them by the time they get to you. So I was never too happy to see that happen, but it did.
0: Okay, I'm just keep pulling up this clip just to jog your memory. Now there's a point in time where you know the beer's going to hit you, and you just had the best, most pissed off look on your face, and I was then
1: probably actually happy about it and just working with it because that that I never really got upset when people threw stuff because I knew we we're.
0: You're doing your job. We're hitting
1: them out of the park. I mean, okay, bonus points, bonus points, bonus points. It's when they don't throw stuff and they don't react or they react in a Pavlovian manner. You know, if they just cheer because they know they're supposed to cheer boo because they know they're supposed to boo. And there's a difference between feeling it and really being angry and just being Pavlov's dog. Oh, they rang the heel bell. So I'm supposed to boo now. Um, Yeah. That crowd was pretty. That crowd was pretty
0: hot. Oh, they hated you. you... Oh, well, that was
1: awesome. No, no, it was, <laughs> it was awesome.
0: Uh, and then the, uh, I think when the Sting Army came down to save uh, Piper and uh, DDP in the ring, it was just you were the best bad guy ever. So I thank you for everything you've done for wrestling.
1: Oh man, it was a, it was I was an honor. I was blessed to be able to have that opportunity as a moment in time. I'm, I get a kick out of watching it now.
0: And from every comic up to the comedy store who loves pro wrestling, they all love you, man. And
1: there's nowhere else on the planet I can go where there's more than six people in one room, other than a family reunion where people love me, so I may show up and just oh, take a show.
0: Do. Oh, <laughs> they would love. I don't. I mean, I'm sure when you go to a comedy club, you don't want to get on stage, but like it. That's what got uh, Mr. Piper so ingrained into the comedy community is he would show up there late night. He'd go on stage and uh he'd tell some funny stories and then we'd all heckle him in the back (laughs) and he became one of us and it was just like if you did that one night at the comedy store
1: i don't know if i have the balls for that but i may have to work up to it
0: oh we would ask you dumb questions from the back i would usually lead the charge and then uh
1: i have to give that a shot
0: it's i'm i can arrange it every comic up there everyone i said hey i'm getting eric bischoff on that their jaws dropped because i mean you were so instrumental to us well that's cool as hell so i mean i know you have to get going and uh where can i know you don't need my help promoting things but on twitter do you like p i notice you tweet back at people who like uh leave you nice comments and uh where can people find you on twitter mr bischoff
1: uh e bischoff
0: Simple Just enough. We're
1: at eBischoff.
0: And uh, where, uh, do you have a website? Like, I know you produce a lot of shows with Mr. Mm-hmm. Mr. Hervey. Is there a, a site you can direct people to?
1: Yeah, you can go to uh, bhe.tv, and that's our website. Or I'm on Facebook, um, Eric Bischoff slash Controversy is my kind of wrestling Facebook page. So I try to post some cool wrestling related stuff there. My personal Facebook page is really just for close friends and family and has nothing to do with wrestling, but my wrestling page is uh, Eric Bischoff controversy. Um,
0: And the book, can the people get the book as an audio book? You
1: can get it through Amazon Uh, controversy creates cash. And by the way, when you reached out to me, and I saw he wanted to do a a podcast on a show called Inappropriate Earl, and I thought, wait a minute, Inappropriate Earl controversy creates cash. That's that's just made in heaven. That's supposed to happen.
0: Well, <laughs> I, well, I mean, I was so honored to be a part of Mister Piper's podcast the last, uh, you know, four or five months of his life, and uh, you know, he was actually supposed to come over the day he passed. Oh wow! Um, I thought. You know, I know when you get an email or a tweet from a guy like me, you're like, probably who the fuck is this guy? Uh, but I thought, you know what? If I could get Mr. Piper, Mr. Bischoff's the next guy.
1: No, I'm uh, glad you did. This has been, this is really fun. We'll, we'll do it again.
0: I would like, uh, you know, I try and ask you, uh, you know, I know you get sick of at getting asked about the NWO, about yeah. Hogan, about, you know, staying a warrior. Uh, can I pitch you one more idea? Sure. And I know you're good friends with Mister Hogan, and uh, we're not going to talk about any bad things. But being that he is a pro wrestler, and you know his, you know he had some wacky times the last year. I think I have the perfect angle to get him back in everyone's good graces. I like it. I'm being completely serious. Next year at the Royal Rumble, mm-hmm. you bring him back, and you have him take on every black wrestler on the roster. Okay, Well, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I think that would get him like, I think that would work. I could see by the look on your face, you're not a fan of that no, idea. I'm just
1: waiting to see where it's going to go. Okay. So well, it's just have, a one-off. You, okay, but what's the outcome?
0: Well, you could go one of two ways. You could have him beat them, or you could have them like half comic, half serious, beat the shit out of him. I don't think the audience would want to see that. Well, it would be done more in a humorous way than, uh, you know, because there was, you know, uh, that, that you know, situation. And, and uh, I think, oh, wow, he's got a good, he's a good sport.
1: Well, he is a good sport. And, you know, the, the truth is, if there was something, you know, positive that that, that Hulk could do, um, he'd probably embrace doing it. Um But yeah, you'd have to think that through and make sure that it was something that made the audience happy. You know, I don't think the audience, and look, I'm I'm not justifying or defending anything that happened because, you know, I was there for that period of his time uh, or his life when he was really, really broken and things were really dark and he was a fucking mess. There's just no two, there's not a better way to say it. He was a broken shell of a person. You take You know, the back injury that he had, the pain pills that he was taking because of the back injury, the fact that he couldn't walk. Then he'd throw, you know, a quarter or two of Captain Morgan on top of that every day and another fistful of pills to get through an afternoon. And you can just only imagine what's left in terms of a a human being. And that was, you know, the dark spot that he was at. But I can also tell you there was not a nicer, kinder, gentler, non-racist person that I know.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I was...
1: So I, th- I think if we could come up with a way to embrace the reality of what happened, but turn it into a positive, I know him well enough to know he'd embrace it.
0: Because I know in the the wrestling world, I mean, you know, the, there have been some pretty wacky uh, characters, you know, Slick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Slick the pimp, uh, you know, Kamala the savage, you know, uh, giant who couldn't speak English, uh, Akim the African dream who turned – I don't know, black all of a sudden after being like the whitest wrestler I've ever, the one-man gang. <laughs> uh, th- I'm going to get up to hit stop because I know I keep saying I could talk to you forever. When you approach a wrestler like the one-man gang, and I know you weren't uh, weren't there for this, but and you hit him with, hey, man, we know you're a legit badass. You're, you're a great big man wrestler, but uh, we're going to turn you black. We're going to make you speak jive do you like hope they go for it or do you just tell them, Hey, this is what you're doing next week. I, I mean, I, I, I and not in-, in that specific, I know you weren't there, but like, say you had a wacky idea for, uh, I don't know. Lenny and Lodi, the Hollywood blondes. Sure. <laughs> Did you go to them and say, Hey guys, we're going to kind of turn you into a, a, a semi gay tag team. I mean, these guys are legit wrestlers. They you know probably wrestling twenty years in the dungeons. Of-
1: you know, Earl's no different than I think. You know, a director who's got you know assembles a, a cast of actors for a movie. You got to bring out the best, and you, you you want a, an actor to play a certain character. You've got to sell it to them. You've got to right. convince them that it's good for them. You've got to help them find themselves in that character that you want them to be, so that they can do a good job with it. It's never ever. I can imagine going to any performer who is worth anything and saying, this is what you're going to do, whether you like it or not, just go do it. Right. Because the end result is going to be pretty predictable.
0: Well, I mean, I know in the pro wrestling world, it's uh, pretty much a cut and dry. You know, it's almost like being a comic, having a comedy club owner saying, hey, uh, you know, you got to kind of do this. We've got, we all pretty much take it. You know, okay, sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know in the wrestling world since these guys and girls, of course, or legitimate athletes, and, and some probably have an ego of, you know, like when you guys would give Dean Malenko humorous spots, uh, which I always loved because he seemed to be a pretty uh, serious guy. Uh, but I thought they were great when he was. Uh, he, because
1: he's, fat, he's naturally funny as hell. Right. He's just naturally funny. He'd like doing that stuff. He'd like doing the. Look, a guy like Dean Malenko is so confident in himself. <laughs> he he knows what he's capable of doing. He's, there's not an ounce of insecurity in that gentleman. So when we asked him to do something that was fun and out of character, he it didn't bother him to do it because he had that much confidence.
0: And same with a guy like Lance Storm, who you know strikes me as a pretty, you know, I trained with Stu Hart. I'm, I'm They're gonna...
1: performers, man. They just want to perform and have fun doing it.
0: Well. Once again, Mr. Bischoff, from me and every comic at the Comedy Store, I really appreciate you doing this.
1: Oh, it's been a blast.
0: And uh, guys, Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud on iTunes. If you don't follow Eric Bischoff, follow him because, you know, he didn't have to come down here and talk with me for two hours. He's been getting these questions for 30 years. <laughs> and so just respect him and uh, respect me for getting him down here. And uh, Here, here. <laughs> easy it's an honor.
1: Thank you, man. I appreciate it.